Well, we're going to have a little bit, something a little bit different tonight, but first I'll go over the announcements. This coming uh, Saturday, which is day after tomorrow, for those of you who are, have had a long day and you're a little slow, day after tomorrow, we're going to have our uh, family night here, uh, starting at 5 o'clock, and we've got lots of barbecue, and we have people who are bringing uh, various sides and desserts, so I'm sure we'll have plenty to eat. We're going to be showing a film, and that film is called Alone Yet Not Alone. This was a regular commercial release. In fact, Johnny Erickson, if you're familiar with her, uh, Johnny Erickson became well-known in Christian community back in the late 70s because as a young girl and a budding uh, swimming uh, talent, had a diving act accident, broke her neck, and became a quadriplegic. And she wrote a book called Johnny, which told the story of how she uh, learned to trust God. As a result of that, she's already a believer, but when something like that happens and you're on a fast track to achievement and then God derails you like that, you have to really come to grips with the doctrine of suffering. And it was a great book. In fact, it was a book I think was required reading in one of my seminary classes dealing with with suffering and she apparently was still left with the ability to sing not to swim but to sing and she sang the soundtrack the title song for the for the film and was nominated for an academy award even though she did not not win but that is why when you look at it it says you know it was nominated for an academy award that's the academy award but it's a it's based on a true story, and it's a as a Christian element to it that is significant. And it's I think it's rated PG-13. It's a couple of scenes that are a little violent with some Indian attacks, but other than that, um, it's it's good. And so we'll we'll show the film. And what I'd really like to do is to do these kinds of things like we used to do a little more often. It's hard to find good films. So for those of you who are parents, you know, see something you think would be good. Then, then we can show that. So that will be from 5 to 8 on Sunday night. Then the other announcement is for long-term planning on September 22nd. We have our men's prayer break, breakfast and deacons meeting. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening in our Bible study on 1 Peter, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This is important to set our thinking We've had busy days. We've had a lot of different things going on. Some of us, like me, have been just running through the day with hardly any time to sit and think and be quiet. And we need to focus, refocus our attention on the Lord. We come, uh, even though this is not what we normally refer to as a worship service, whenever we are studying the Word of God, it is a time of worship. And that is why we need to be cleansed of sin. As we study God's Word, God the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us. But if we're out of fellowship, if we have broken fellowship with God, no longer walking by the Spirit, but walking uh, 
by the sin nature, then we need to recover. And that is simply by confessing sin. Uh, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness so that we can resume our forward walk by the Spirit. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, so often we just run through our busy modern lives from one event to another with one issue to another, fighting traffic and dealing with uh, one challenge right after another and taking the time to relax, to think, to focus, to reflect upon your word, to be reminded of your promises and the scripture. It's just hard to do. And Father, yet this is the essence of a life that is designed to serve you, dedicated to serve you, and is, in that sense, a life focused on worship. And Father, we come together this evening because we know that the highest form of worship is to study and then apply your word, to have our thinking renovated, overhauled, not being conformed to the world, but transformed And Father, we pray that as we study tonight, that you'll help us to understand your word and to see its implications and applications for our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter um, 4. Well, we're at the end of 4. Headed to 5. I can get the pages of my Bible to go in the right direction here. We're in 1 Peter, and I want to review chapter, what I covered last time a little bit, because as we went through it, and the actual understanding of the text, and it's so different from what you see in the English. And so we'll we'll start with the little review starting in about chapter 4, Uh, verse 16, 17, 18, and 19 before we shift gears into chapter 5. But one of the things I wanted to say, we have a special guest with us, special guests with us tonight. Over here on my left, we have Ralph and Cindy LaRosa. They've been missionaries in the Philippines for uh, 40 years. Some of you have met them before. Some of you met them 40 years ago and haven't seen them since, and so what we're doing is we have a little bit of a shortened Bible class tonight so that we can have an opportunity to hear about uh, how God has uh, blessed their ministry and the wonderful things that are going on in in the Philippines. So we'll probably go for about 35 or 40 minutes, and then we'll close, and then it'll take about a few seconds or so to switch computers so that uh, Ralph can come up we just went out to dinner. I had not met. I met Ralph briefly, about maybe twenty-five years ago, and uh, so tonight we had dinner and we just had a, an uproarious, wonderful, joyful, animated, intense theological discussion. Isn't that right, Ralph? Great time together. Great time of fellowship, getting to know someone else who loves the Lord and loves the Word. So. 
We're in First Peter 4. Well, actually, we're going to 5. I need to change that scripture reference. If we get there, we're talking about leading, and that's the focal point. We're going to get into some areas of ecclesiology which we haven't gotten into before when we get into the first four verses of chapter 5. And so we've been studying worship in an extended sub-series on Tuesday nights, and so this will complement that to some degree as we talk about leadership and leadership in the church, and that the focal point for leadership biblically is serving, not being an overlord or ruling or dominating. Last time we looked at this much misunderstood, much abused passage in 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the people of God? A couple of things I pointed out that it's obvious that this is saying is there some sort of uh, a fortiori argument going on here that if something lighter is happening to the church, then how much greater will it be for those who have, who are not believers? Something like that is going on, but there's things going on in the Greek that are usually overlooked because they're very confusing, very difficult to get a hold of. And it's usually applied in terms of the fact that this is the judgment's divine discipline and that the church is going to come under divine judgment because of sin and if, of course, that's not going to be eternal condemnation, and so the rationale goes, if God is going to bring this harsh judgment on the church, then uh, how much more harsh will it be when, when it's dealing with unbelievers? But that ignores the context on the one hand and some, some significant Greek grammar on the other hand. So I pointed out a series of questions last time that have to be explained We'll just put them up here on the screen. The significance of the four at the beginning, that this is uh, taking us in the direction of an explanation. It's not the normal word that's translated for, which is the Greek word gar. It's a hadi, and hadi indicates a causal uh, relationship, a causal explanation. So it's an explanation as to... Uh, verses 15 and 16, talking about not suffering for sin, sins mentioned are partially crimes, some sin, murder, thief, evildoer, busybody, but that we are to suffer as a Christian. So it's really clear this passage is talking about Christians who are suffering for Christ, for the name of Christ, back in verse 14, if you are belittled, ridiculed, made fun of, uh, persecuted for the name of Christ. So this isn't talking about general undeserved suffering. It's a subcategory. This is specifically, as I said, suffering related to being a Christian, taking a stand for Christ and in, in a culture that is antagonistic to Christianity. And that's exactly where these people found themselves. And so uh, the judgment that we see here is not going to be um, the kind of judgment that is divine discipline because they're not doing anything wrong. Second thing that we have to understand is the sense of this meaning of this word time, for the time has come. It's the Greek word kairos, 
as I pointed out, that really means a period, and it relates to a dispensation, that there's a dispensational shift, and during this dispensation, there is going to be suffering for those who are standing for Christ. When it talks about judgment, a time has come for judgment. This isn't a judgment in terms of divine discipline in a negative sense. It's the word krima in the Greek, which has to do with the verdict. And the verdict is that God is bringing judgment on those who are persecuting the church. So then we have uh, an infinitive that's translated there to begin. And what does that sense of that, it's expressing a sense of purpose. And then when we get to, then the next one is really the, the difficult thing. And that is that the preposition that's used here twice is the preposition apa. And it's translated in the King James, beginning at the house of God, no lexicon tell, defines uh, apa in that way. It's the preposition for source, something coming from something, originating from something, or starting from a point in time. And so it begins from the house of God and begins from us first. So it originates from us. It's not talking about it's something that's happening within the church. And then you have the phrase, the house of God, which is another term that has to be related. And that means that that's not talking about the local church, as, as we'll see. That's talking about this spiritual house that is, that is the universal church, the body of Christ. And this really becomes clear when you look at the fact that verse 18 is a quote from the Septuagint version of Proverbs 11.31. And that brings out what the real issue is. And then we get to the 19th verse, which I kind of blew past last, last time. So uh, that's the basic that we're, thing that we're looking at. So let me just sort of walk our way through this in terms of a general, uh, general explanation. In verse 16, so we pick up the context, it's talking about if anyone suffers as a Christian. So the suffering here that is talked about here is not for doing something wrong, but for doing something right. So there's nothing in the context that would indicate that the judgment of verse 17 is a judgment God's bringing because there's sin in the church, which is how you'll often hear it applied. Because there's sin in the church, and then it's used as a tool to intimidate and scare and frighten uh, believers into straightening out their lives because God's going to bring judgment on you, and then, uh, then it's going to go from the house of God. And so you better straighten out your life. And I've heard pastors say that. The context then of 17 and 18 is not something negative, but it is something that is designed. uh, It's not positive. It's not talking about God's purifying judgment on the church either because it's something that starts... Uh, from the church. Now, let me just skip this because I've I've already talked about these. Uh, When we get to to this slide, it begins from the house of God, and then Peter restates it and says, if it begins uh, from us first. 
So it would make sense in English if we translate it begins with us or at the house of God, and that's why most of your translations use those prepositions. But those prepositions never show up in any of the uh, lexicons for the meaning of this word. So the only thing that we can come up with, you know, my favorite uh, principle of hermeneutics from Sherlock Holmes is if you eliminate the impossible, then whatever's left, no matter how difficult or improbable it may be, must be right. And that's what we see here, is that it's not talking about something that's happening to the house of God or within the house of God, or at the house of God, because the house of God is a church universal. It's happening, it originates from them, from something that is happening to believers, because the term house of God is not a, 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 a localized term. So we have passages like 1 Peter 2, 5, that we are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the metaphor that is being used by Peter for the body of Christ. We're being built up as a spiritual house. So whether you're in, um, as they were, whether you're in north-central Turkey, what is Turkey today, whether you're in Germany, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in the Philippines, whether you're in China, you're part of the house of God. And if persecution comes to believers for their stand for the truth for Jesus, then from that point, that's what Peter is saying, from that point, then this um, judgment comes. And this judgment that's coming from that point is a judgment on the unbelievers. So this is not directed to believers. It is starts from the point of their uh, persecution. 1 Timothy 3.15 also talks about how you conduct yourselves in the house of God, in the body of Christ, as a Christian. Hebrews 3.6, Christ is a son over his own house. So this is a New Testament metaphor for, for the body of Christ, for the church. And so if it starts from us, then what... And what that indicates is there's going to be a temporal judgment on those who are persecuting believers. God will bring judgment. Maybe That doesn't mean that he's going to whack them tomorrow if they say something nasty about you today. But the end result is that God is going to deal with it in his time. But it starts now in time, and, but it will have a final conclusion. And that's what's expressed by the phrase end. What will be the end, the telos? What will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, not obeying the gospel of God is a term for unbelievers. Now, they can go in this life, they can go from not obeying the gospel, which is to respond to the command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, So when you talk about obeying the gospel, you're talking about believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. This is what uh, Paul indicates in Acts 26, 19, when he's talking to King Agrippa. He said, "I I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. When Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, 
he responded in belief. He was not disobedient to the command of Jesus at that point. And then he describes his life prior to that with terms that are similar to those that we run into in 1 Peter 4. If you look back earlier in the chapter, there's a setup of Peter that he talks about now we're believers, but before we were believers in our past life, we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drunken drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. We, we lived, he's speaking um, with sort of an editorial, I mean, uh, an authorial we. He, Peter was an Orthodox Jew. He didn't do this, but some of those he's writing to did. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, etc. And now you don't do that. You're not going out and partying through the weekend with your Gentile buddies. And they're a little offended by that. And so they think it's strange, verse 4, that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. So they're blaspheming you. It's translated speaking evil of you, but it's blasphemeo in the Greek. They're blaspheming you, which means they're blaspheming Christ. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So his point is that they're being ridiculed, they're being blasphemed by the pagans because they're no longer acting like them. And when you look over to verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, after Peter says, if you are reproached or belittled or ridiculed for the name of Christ, Blessed are you for the spirit of glory of God rests on you. On their part, that is the unbelieving pagan, he is blasphemed. So there it's, the verb is the same, but it's translated correctly here. So clearly the idea is the, the ridicule, the opposition of the pagans. And this is what Paul says he was. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor of Christians, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy. So just because someone is in this category of a blasphemer doesn't mean that in this life they can't turn to Christ and be saved. So what we see here is that the time has come for judgment to begin from the house of God as this persecution begins. And if it begins from us first, and that's at this time, in this period of time, in this dispensation, then what will be the end result? The end result is if this continues, then they're going to come under eternal judgment for not obeying the gospel of God. The illustration then comes in the next verse, 1 Peter 4.18, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? This is a quote from Proverbs 11.31. In the New American Standard, it reads, If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. But the Septuagint changed the translation a little bit. Instead of saying, if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, it translated it, if the righteous are scarcely be saved, or are saved with difficulty. 
And we are. Christ had to die for us. God had to institute a complex plan of salvation. It was, from a human perspective, difficult to save us. But if that salvation, and I think last time I was trying to make this fit into a phase two salvation, I've rethought this. It's very, very challenging to go through this. If the righteous scarcely were saved, or literally the word scarcely indicates that which is difficult. If the righteous, if, if it's difficult to save the believer, then how impossible it is for the wicked and the sinner. There's your ad hominem. The righteous have to be saved through something that was complex, and that was the work of salvation. Then the conclusion in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God. So this starts off with a construction in the Greek, a concluding statement that draws from not just the previous two verses of 17 and 18, but this draws from, goes all the way back to verse 12. The concluding statement, because it's talking about suffering again, those who suffer according to the will of God, they're suffering for the name of Christ, they're suffering as a Christian, and It is the will of God. Jesus predicted that this would happen in John 14 and John 16, that the believer, who, if they crucified him, what will they do to those who follow him? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, it is the permissive will of God. He lets suffering occur in this life for various reasons, and we may not figure it out until eternity, and even then we may not comprehend it all. But we know that it is will produce that which is right for all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him. In other words, if you're going through persecution, suffering, this would apply to anything, but he's, he's directing it to undeserved suffering for your stand for Christ then commit the situation to the Lord. We're going to come back to this in one of my favorite promises in verse 7 of chapter 5, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. See, this is just, the, the you see these themes being woven in and out of this conclusion. According to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing God in doing good by uh, as to a faithful creator he is the one who will he is faithful and therefore he will handle the situation according to his righteousness and his justice so that brings us to a conclusion of this transition paragraph from 12 to 19 which is the first paragraph of the uh, of the conclusion. The next paragraph we come to the first four verses of chapter 5. The word that is missing from those four verses is the word humility, but that's what they're talking about. And that comes into play when we get into verse 5 submit to one another and be clothed with humility. 
It's stated again in the quote, but God gives grace to the humble. It's stated in verse 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So humility is brought to the surface in the paragraph from uh, verse 5 down to verse 10, but it is what's talked about in 1 through 4 without using the term. And it's related to leadership. And so here he changes from what he's been talking about in the conclusion for suffering to the role of the leaders in preparing the congregation to face this kind of of suffering. But it's going to bring in some things that, that I've never talked about or taught through very much over the years. And so we'll have to take some time to look at it. But first tonight, what we're looking at is just the overview of these next four, uh, four verses. Verse 1, let's just read through it. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. That's talking about pride and arrogance. The contrast is but being examples to the flock. That's humility. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, when we get into this, it immediately brings to our attention some things about church leaders. So I just have about five talking points here to look at as an overview of this this particular passage. There's reference here, obviously, to church leaders. And so on this slide, I have underlined those terms, the elders who are among you. Then there's a command, shepherd the flock of God, serving as overseers. So here you have three different terms, all related to the same people, all related to the same individuals. And so it raises the question, questions is, why are they called elders? What is the significance of the term elder? Why, and second, why does Peter identify himself as a fellow elder. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle. Why isn't he saying, as he's directing them, why isn't he saying, Peter, an apostle? Why is he saying, Peter, I'm Peter, a fellow elder? What's going on there? Uh, Then we have the question, of why is he, uh, what is the command here? What is he telling them to do? Why doesn't he call them pastors 
if they're the leader in the church? Why doesn't he call them pastors? What is does it mean to shepherd the flock? And then what does it mean to serve as overseers? Now, what's important about that, that's three words in English. In the Greek, it's only one word, episkopeo. The noun form of that word is episkopos. What English word do we get from episkopos? This is not a hard question. Very good, episcopalian. And that's important to understand what's going on here because what we get into here is we're opening the door to talking about how is the church to govern itself? Who are the leaders of the church? And why doesn't the passages that relate to leaders of the church talk about pastors? Why are they called elders? And so we need to, I'll get into that a little bit as a uh, opening introduction, and then we'll, we'll delve into it more as we, as we move forward. These men, this is the second, all that was related to the second point, these main terms for the leaders. They serve as overseers. What is, what, the sense of episkopos, or episcopeo, has to do with a function, a responsibility. They are overseeing something. Uh, so a better translation would be shepherd the flock of God which is among you, overseeing. And I would add them uh, as, as an object, though it's not in the text, it's just overseeing because that describes the function also of the of the one who is to shepherd. And then it, we have the motive addressed. And the motive is addressed in a, a, a list that is contrasting the positive with the negative. Uh, first of all, they are to do this not by compulsion, not out of some sense of duty where they feel like they're forced into it or because someone else is is pushing them to do it, maybe putting them on a guilt trip to do it, but they are to do it from their own volition, their own sense of responsibility, and take on this this ministry willingly. The emphasis that we run through here is that leadership in the church, as, as Jesus points it out, and we'll go to those passages as we go along, Jesus points out that we're not to lord it over the flock, the church like the Gentiles do, but to serve with humility. So leadership is being defined in the Bible on the basis of humility and service, not on the basis of self-gain, not on the basis of the the greedy pursuit of wealth. So it's done willingly, a desire to serve, uh, not from a sense of compulsion. Second, it's not from dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now, that's it, an interesting contrast. Uh, some translations say it's shameful gain, dishonest gain. It, it's, it's looking for uh, gain where there's, that's not the purpose of the ministry. You don't go into the ministry to get wealthy, 
Now, you might, if you hold to the health and wealth heresy that came out of the Pentecostal church in the last 50 years, you know, this really had its roots in what was known as the healing revivals that occurred in the late 40s and early 50s. And this is where you, some of you may have heard the term, you don't know what it means, walking the sawdust trail. And the old revivals where they would put up tents and then they would spread sawdust on the on the floor in order to you know and so you're not walking on dirt or mud you're walking on sawdust and so at the end they would have an invitation people who come forward repent of their sins uh, give money whatever walking forward was called walking the sawdust trail just you just need to have that little cultural information and insight there was a well-known um, healing revivalist in the late 40s and early 50s, national fame. Most people never uh, today have never heard of him, don't remember him. His name was A.A. Allen. And A.A. Allen, at the high point of the, of the service, would say something like, I'm the pastor and you're the sheep, and it's now it's time to get fleeced. And everybody would, would come down the aisle and they would, uh, you know, it, it's visible show. And, and some of you have seen this. I know I've been in churches where this they've done this. It's embarrassing when I'm the guest speaker and they do this in front of me. But, you know, sometimes you just can't be rude and say, don't do this. Um, they have a big basket down front. So you're going to see who's putting something in the in the offering plate. And Jesus said, that when we give, we're not to give so that people know what we're doing. It, only God matters. It's between us and the Lord. It's not for show. It's not uh, to give, bring any sort of recognition to ourselves. A.A. A. Allen eventually died, was found dead in his hotel room in 1970 from acute alcoholic shock. He had been a drunk for years. And it was kept quiet in the, um, and, and, and that was, he wasn't the only one, let me tell you that. And that's why you often hear charismatics misquote 417, or 417, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, because we got these drunk healing evangelists. And they would come out and they would talk about that. I've been in services where they did that. Um, so... I never know, knew anyone who ever went into the ministry to get wealthy. That's not the goal. It isn't go if it is your goal, it's probably not going to happen unless you go into heresy. But that is not the goal. So we're not doing it for personal gain. We're not doing it uh, in order to uh, please some uh, outside force or person. And then verse 3, not as being lords over those who entrusted to you. So we're not to dominate. It's not an authority trip. I think that's true. It happens in the pastorate. It happens in church leadership. I never figured out why some people who have power less want to get involved in a ser serving on a board in a church, but it happens a lot, and they can create a little uh, fiefdom and get power and often cause a lot of, of pain and misery and trouble in local churches. We're not to lord 
our leadership over people, we're to live as an example so that people can, can see to some degree uh, Christ-likeness in us. That's the role of, of leaders as we serve the Lord. And the ultimate goal is so that God is glorified at the judgment seat of Christ. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of, of glory. So I'll skip this next slide. I thought I had another slide there. I don't. I'm going to back up. Okay. What we're going to look at here in verse 1 is this meaning of this word elder. I need to wrap up in about five minutes, so I'm not going to take a lot of time to go through this tonight. But basically what happens in the early church in the New Testament period if you had churches that I believe had two offices, one was an office that related to the spiritual, the primary spiritual leader of the congregation, that there was one. He's described by three terms in the New Testament. The first term and the most prominent term is the term elder, presbyteros. Guess what English word derives from presbyteros? Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Very good. Yeah, presbyopia is another word. Presbyopia. Opia. Like an optometrist, your eyes. Presbyopia, old eyes. You know, you can't quite see. You got your arms get longer and longer. You've got presbyopia. So, Presbyter, presbytos refers to someone who is physically older, or it can refer to someone who is spiritually mature. Okay, so that emphasizes the maturity aspect of the leader. It was a the prominent term to describe Jewish leaders in the synagogue and in the various sects, uh, sects of Judaism. For example, if you go into the Gospels, the primary use of presbyteros is to describe the elders and the chief priests, the religious leaders. And a few times it, would ref it refers to an older person, but primarily it's referring to a leader in one of the religious sects or religious leader in the synagogue. When you get to Acts, it begins to shift. You get a transition. Now, in the early part of Acts, how many people between Acts 1 and Acts 10, how many people in the church are Jewish? All of them. Okay? They all are converts. It's not until Acts 10 that Peter has the vision of the tablecloth coming down and God sends him to Cornelius and then Gentiles are brought in into the church. So up to that point, it's interesting that the phrase that you find in the church when there is a problem, even up through Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, is that the leaders come together to try to solve a problem and it's the apostles and the elders the apostles and the elders. There, it's a transition time 
in the early church. When we went through Acts, I talked a lot about the, the importance of understanding the transitions that, that are taking place uh, in that period from 33 A.D. to 70 A.D. So you still use, in fact, it, it, historically, Christians were still meeting in some synagogues. They've discovered in Jerusalem, if you come out of the, if you come out of the Zion Gate, and you turn right, and you're headed up the hill that is Mount Zion, and you have the Darmitian Abbey up there, that somewhere in that area between the Zion Gate and the Darmitian Abbey, they have discovered uh, what was thought to be a synagogue from the first century. But then as they've excavated it, they've discovered Christian symbols there. It was a synagogue of Jews that had become believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And this was, this was very common at that time. There were a lot of Jews who became Christians, and they, you had 5,000 men that are baptized at the southern steps of, of the Temple Mount uh, by Peter and by the other apostles on the day of Pentecost. And then just a few days later, the next day I think it is, um, Peter's there preaching again in Acts chapter 4, and you have another 4,000 men. Well, that how many women and children and others? You probably had, uh, within the first week uh, of, of the church, you probably had 20,000 Jewish believers, because remember, a lot of them were already Old Testament saints, and now they've heard as they've come to Jer Jerusalem, uh, as they've come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, now they're hearing that Jesus is the Messiah. They hear the evidence. They hear about the resurrection. And they shift from being an Old Testament saint to being a New Testament church-age believer because they've trusted in Jesus as Messiah. So you have twenty or 30,000 just in the first week. Within the first couple of years, you have more. And they're living in Jerusalem. And so you're going to have a number of these different different churches. You have the apostles who are not related to a local church, and you have the elders. It's a term for the, for the leaders of these local churches. Now, we'll get into the issue of how many elders per church a little bit later on, but that's, that's the primary meaning. Now, when you, by the time you get to about Acts uh, 11 and then Acts 15, you start seeing these the phrases the apostles and the elders, and you start seeing leaders in the local churches being described as elders until you get to Acts chapter 20. And I'm just going to introduce this very briefly in Acts chapter 20 because two of the key passages for talking about this terminology are 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, and... Uh, Acts chapter 20. Here you have a group that is identified by the noun elders. There are elders. What are these elders supposed to do? The command is that they are to shepherd the flock. Poimano, that's the verb. The noun is pastor. Okay, so it's using the elder is to feed the sheep, to pastor the sheep, to tend the sheep. A few translations, most of them translated shepherd, but there's some others here and there. King James uses feed. I think the RSV uses tend, uh, but that's the idea there. They tend the flock as overseers, as those who are watching over. 
So it's episkopos. So all three of those terms are describing the same, the same person. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem after the third missionary journey, and he stops. He wants to visit the leaders of the churches in Ephesus. And so he stops at Miletus, which is on the coast, and he sends to Ephesus, and he calls for the elders of the church. We would say the pastors of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to you, blah, 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 we're going to go on. And he talks in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. So again, that is how the leadership functions, is it serves with all humility. And then we're going to skip down to verse 28. Verse 28, he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves. Now, who's he talking about to? He's talking to the elders, and he says, watch yourselves and to all the flock. So part of the role of a shepherd is to protect the sheep. Now, I can't protect you from getting colds. I can't protect you from getting cancer, but I can protect you, hopefully, from getting sucked into false doctrine. That's what their job is. That's part of what it means to shepherd. And he uses the imagery of a flock. Among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, there's that second word now. Overseers. Episcopos here. It's the noun form. Overseers. And then what? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the verb Poimino, which is the same verb you have here in 5.2. So the verb of shepherding describes the function, the role, uh, the job description of the elder. Elder is, describes the office. Pastoring describes uh, his function, and overseeing uh, describes his responsibility. So <coughs> these two passages, Acts 20 and first Peter set this up. But what happens in the early church is it's hardly a generation, maybe two, and they're developing within cities a, a position that is higher and oversees the other pastors. And that is <clears throat> that person is going to be called the episcopos, the bishop. And this is the beginning of the idea of, of a hierarchy uh, in the church, and it gets to its worst, most abused form in the, in the Middle Ages. But that's where it begins. And so what we need to do is kind of think our way through this. We come out of a mixed heritage. Dallas Theological Seminary was founded by Lewis Berry Chafer, who was a Presbyterian. And so you have some Bible churches that have an elder rule type of government because of that Presbyterian influence. But there were others who came and became part of the faculty at Dallas Seminary who had a Baptist background. And they brought with them an emphasis on a Baptist way of governing a church. Baptists, for the most part, believe in a single elder or single pastor who oversees the congregation, not a plurality of elders. And <clears throat> we come, many of the people here in this congregation have come from an influence from a pastor theme. Most people don't know this. He was ordained a conservative Baptist. 
And his father-in-law was one of three men who led a separation movement from the Northern Liberal American Baptist denomination and founded a new conservative denomination, Bible-based denomination, that took the name Conservative Baptist Association. We don't have too many conservative Baptists um, as a denomination in Texas. You find them in the West, California, Arizona, Nevada, Washington, Portland, and across the North. But you don't, you, you have our conservative Baptists here are Southern Baptists. But that was a denomination. Denver Seminary, Portland Seminary were their two seminaries, but it was founded by his father in law. He got most of his training. He was about, a, as a believer, he was not more than a year and a half a believer when he left home in, in high school to go to, I always get it wrong, University of Arizona, right? Uh, to go to University of Arizona, and he met his father-in-law, Dr. Beal. He interviewed a lot of pastors, and Dr. Beal was a dispensationalist, and he was conservative, and he started going to that church. I'm convinced, I can't prove it, I'm convinced he got about 90% of his doctrinal foundation from Dr. Beal. A lot of Beal's innovations, I've talked to people, a lot of Beal's innovations in teaching and other things uh, were carried on by Pastor Thien. But the point that I'm making is that that's where he picked up his understanding of how a church was to be organized and how that government was to function. So he introduced a Baptistic organization to Baraka Church which was really messed up when he came. They had trustees, they had deacons, and they had um, elders, and he got rid. And, you know, there was a myth that he fired the board. What he did was there was one board that was real contentious, and he said, if I come, we need to get rid of that board. Basically, what he was doing is reorganizing the leadership of the church according to Baptist standards, where you had a a one pastor, a single pastor, single elder type of rule. So these are the two views, and you'll find a lot of doctrinal churches. There's a number of them that have elders, and there's a number of them that follow a baptistic view. And so we're going to talk about some of these things and the history behind these ideas and these approaches, as well as the biblical exegesis of this over the next two or three weeks as we go through these passages. So with that, I'm going to close in prayer, and then Ralph can come up. Uh, I've gone a little longer than I intended, but we started a little late, and then I'm going to have Ralph come up, and uh, he's going to give us a uh, a presentation. I'm really excited. As I said, I've only met Ralph once briefly about, I don't know, 20-plus years ago, and I read his newsletters, and I'm just excited to hear about his, his ministry in the Philippines. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged with what it teaches us, how to handle suffering, how to trust in you, how to put, commit our lives into your hands. Father, I pray that, <clears throat> that we would take this to heart because we're living in a world today where the opposition to the truth of Scripture is becoming more defined, more pronounced, more intense. And we may see uh, a, a lot more than we ever thought we would before you take us home. And Father, I pray for Ralph as he gives a presentation that uh, he'll be relaxed and clear and that you will use that for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay, good evening. You can talk to me. I'm a missionary. <laughs> so good to be here. Um, I got a title for my message. It's called Reminiscence. And to see Katie tapping was really a reminiscence as uh, she's the Bishop of Houston. And I, I just couldn't believe how she looks the same. Just amazing. And I want to thank Robbie Dean. I've, I hear about him all the time. I only met him briefly once, as he said, but thank you. Thank you, West Houston Bible Church. Is that correct? And for the opportunity to present our ministry. And I know that I have ran into a source of resources. You can download Robbie Dean, wow. He's just walking information, so I'm excited about that. So tonight, what I'd like to do, that's not a tombstone, by the way. I would like to, first of all, point out that the soldier represents the hundreds and thousands of men and women that died for freedom. And the cross represents the one, the unique one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for salvation in our soul. And so I like to use this graphic. One of our teachers came up with it, and I really like it. So I'm going to, I'm going to present tonight four basic points. When Moses was just about to die, and he wrote some messages in Deuteronomy under divine inspiration, a new generation would go into the land, and he told them, many times we're told to forget some things, like in Philippians 3, but he, we're also to remember things, just like in the communion service. So that's what I want to do tonight. And the first thing I would like to do is remember the blessings. And I'm going to basically tell my story, our story, my wife and I, and you're going to see that we did not get into the ministry for wealth. That's what you'll think. So there will be an application of what you learned tonight. So the first thing I would like to do is introduce you to my family this way uh, and show you that we all make choices and transitions. And whatever your ministry, whether you're in the nursery back there or teaching adults or whatever you're doing, that's a choice. And no matter who you are or what your background or how much training you've had, it will be a transition. There will be challenges. And so we're going to talk about that. So that's uh, Cindy and our two kids when we first became missionaries. That was the first passport picture. And she's here tonight. Uh, by the way, I see some people from Connecticut and that, that I had the privilege of knowing years ago also. I'm glad they're here. And so that's our first passport picture. And then God provided the way. You like that airplane? Isn't that cute? One of our teachers did that. Uh, but what's wrong with that picture? That plane's going out the East Coast. You actually go out the West Coast, okay? <laughs> but anyway, we ended up in the same place in the Philippines. This is our family between 1975 and 1977. I love this picture because not only were we young and we had a lot of hair, I did, uh, but it's where we ran on to Bible doctrines, where we ran on to Colonel Theme in the house uh, just above all those stones. And a missionary there had been there for 18 years. He had all of Baraka publications. 
I was a brand new missionary. He had to go and have surgery, and he died a year later. And there were 107 Bible students there, and I had the privilege of being the president and teaching them, president of that school. And so I used publications from Baraka Church and began to teach during this time. And so it was a big transition. So I'd like to kind of tell you the story of how we became missionaries. I first visited the Philippines in 1966 as a U.S. Marine. I did one tour of duty in the combat zone of Vietnam from 1966 to July 1967. I got my honorable discharge from active duty as a Sergeant E-5 in December 1969, 20 years old. I married Cindy on July 11, 1970. We both became believers in Jesus Christ on the same day, October the 4th, 1970. We heard a missionary to the Philippines speak in December of 1970. So of all, all of the bad decisions I'd made for the first 22 years of my life, I made three really good ones in 1970. I found the Lord Jesus Christ. I met the woman and I heard someone that challenged me for the vocation that has been ours for 43 years. Uh, we, after four years of academic and theological preparation and one year of deputation work, I arrived with my family as missionaries to the Philippines on September the 13th, 1975. Next month, it will be 43 years. This update is going to demonstrate the faithfulness of God, along with Bible principles, very short Bible principles, that teach us some things to remember in four major headings. And so the first one is remember the blessings. I would just like to quote a couple of verses, Deuteronomy 2.7, about remembering the blessings. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over you, over your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. If you study the generation in the desert, they had some very difficult times. They were very stubborn. And yet, God says, you had everything you needed. And that's the fulfillment of the Christian life, to have everything you need, whether you recognize it at that time or not. You look back and you say, yep, that was God. He was there. He provided. May not have been what you expected, but it's there. And I love to go back to the Old Testament because Romans 15.4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I would like to tell you about a blessing that was a very difficult time, but it prepared me for ministry. I like to do this because there may be, in every congregation, someone that needs, like I was, to be challenged to find the ministry that God has for them. Every believer has a ministry. Our, our identity, we're ambassadors for Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, that same passage, he says, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We were officially approved as missionaries in September 1974 and began what is called deputation, i.e. going church to church, group to group, presenting ourselves for missionary activity. I drove 55,000 miles that year, made over 120 presentations, trusting God and his promises to supply our needs, and of course he did. 
I just want to tell you a little more about that deputation since your pastor talked on the subject of not getting into the ministry for wealth, but for God's fulfilling purpose, which is so animating. That year on deputation taught us a lot of things about prayer and faith, divine guidance and protection, God's timing, and most of all, His amazing grace. At the beginning of that year, God graciously provided a car, which I drove for a year, If you have any millennials, I want them to listen to this. With no savings, no credit card, no phone card, no cell phone, no internet, and no guaranteed income. That was our first year. At the end of that year, we left our small Mary dorm apartment and packed everything we owned in a few 50-gallon drums. And on our trip to the West Coast, an airfare to the Philippines for my family was provided. I was so excited that God provided every step of the way although it was a very difficult time. The next thing I would like to talk about is not only should we remember the blessings, we should remember flat-out miracles. Now, I'm not talking about divine healing, although we saw that with our grandson. I'm talking about prayer warriors. Uh, We've been on the prayer bulletin of Baraka Church since 1975, And we certainly appreciate that. From the very first year we we were in the Philippines, we were prayed for all over this country. And it certainly made a difference. And so I'll show you how our family grew, how they began to develop. That's our family in 1985. We have two children, Brian and Natalie. Uh, This is my daughter who graduated in the Philippines. My son, who was in the Marine Corps. Uh, reserves and activated during Gulf War One, and I like to show this one because maybe some of you were a part of praying for my grandson Antone. We called him then. We call him Tony now. Uh, when he was 18 months old in 2001, uh, my son and her and his uh, wife were at a library, and he was run over by an SUV. They gave him a one percent chance to live. We got the last two tickets on a PAL flight, Philippine Airlines, and we were there as soon as possible. Well, less than a month later, he was, it was totally turned around. And now he is, uh, this is a picture of him and the rest of my grandchildren. That's Tony now. You can see my grandchildren are getting bigger and we're getting smaller. But uh, he's 18 years old now, first year of college. That's my son. He's put on a little weight since uh, he was activated in the Marine Corps. That's my daughter, Natalie, and her uh, husband is a pastor, and that's their three grandchildren. Okay, so I want to go back and just talk about some of these. When I'm talking about miracles, I'm talking about markers. I'm talking about times in your life when you look back and there was a transition and you just look at it And you say, only God could do that. It's a change. It's a transition. It's the providence of God. And so in Deuteronomy 4, 9, it says, and we we should look for these things. God is always working behind the scenes for his glory and our ultimate good. And we may not recognize it, but it's there. Deuteronomy 4, 9, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart. You say, what's this got to do with your missionary presentation? That's what it's all about. This missionary presentation is about God working behind the scenes and providing everything we need, including many of you in prayer. 
just when we need it. Your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. So there's two things when I think of miracles. I think of the miracle of the renovation of our mind, being transformed by the grace of God, understanding new things. I'm 70 years old, and I can still learn. I can still grow. I can still understand uh, more correct truth, and I'm open to that. Romans 12:2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so in 1977, I'm going to tell you about one of these transformations, something that even though I had good theological education, I was surrounded by legalism, and so I want to tell you about this year. In 1977, we took a one-year furlough, lived in Houston, Texas, and attended Baraka Church as often as possible. Cindy and our two children attended Bible class and prep school while I was on the road going around the country with my big gray four-track tape recorder, listening to doctrine every day. Of course, later on, we graduated to cassettes, MP3s, and now... Just today, I learned about new technology to get more information, and I'm always open to that. And I'm so thankful for the grace of God in providing information like this. In 1978, we moved moved to Lucena City. We founded our first church, acquired our first property, which we still have today. Our ministry included many Bible classes, Sunday services. We partnered with another missionary, who is now with the Lord, and helped launch some aspiring pastors who are still in the ministry today. Uh, Cindy homeschooled our children for eight years with the same curriculum that we use in our school today. And so after these family markers, we moved to the island of Luzon. Uh, It's called the Calabar Zone, an acrostic that describes the industrial provinces in southern Luzon, Cavite, Laguna, Batangas, Rizal, and Quezon Province. That red portion right there, this is Luzon, the Visayas, Mindanao, where most of the Muslims live, most of the radicals live, and so that's our location. Our ministry base is located in Quezon Province, named after Manuel Quezon. He was the guy that Douglas MacArthur was with on Corregidor, He took off his ring and he put it on Douglas MacArthur's finger and says, if they find your body, I want them to know that you died for my country. He was a Filipino statesman, soldier, politician, and he served as the president of the Commonwealth in the Philippines from 1935 to 1944. And so that's the name of our province, and uh, that's where it came from, vegetable soup. Excuse me. Okay. So, I want to tell you about a fourth thing that we should remember. So, we remember the blessings, we remember the miracles, and we always, excuse me, we always have tests, like right now. And uh, I love this word perseverance, and I love when we're under pressure that we continue, hupomone. I love the fact that no matter what happens, we keep trusting, we keep believing, and God's going to provide. And so I want to tell you about, we heard about leadership tonight. We, took a, we heard about leaders in the ministry, and it takes a long time sometimes to develop leaders. Uh, 
and all leaders are tested. And so I'm going to tell you about the leaders that have been with us for a long time, and they're still a part of our ministry. Some of them were not with us a long time in the ministry, but it, we knew them for a long time, and then they came back and helped us out. So the first guy, his name is Pastor Danny, and uh, I knew him since he was a teenager. He came to our church in the late 1970s, became a believer. He invited this guy, who is now also a part of our leadership. He's on our board of directors. Uh, he's such a great uh, student of the word. This guy lived on the river beside our building when we met him. And for the last 20 years, he self-educated himself in engineering. And he's been in every construction program that we've had for the last 20 years. So God provided this person to help us out a lot. And then this couple also, uh, she's, she's the sister of Danny. And she became a believer in Jesus Christ when she was 15 through Campus Crusade. And she married a Muslim. Not a smart thing to do. But the good thing is, after that, she came to our Bible class. And I didn't know about him so much. But she would come to our Bible classes, and then he would wait outside. She became a nurse, and he became a dentist. And they wanted to migrate to the U.S. So one of them went ahead, and that was uh, Charito. She went ahead, and she became a nurse. She went to Baraka Church. Uh, she got on TNP publications and tapes. She went back to the Philippines, and he is still a Muslim. And they went down to Mindanao, very near Marawi, where the trouble is now. And she said the seven tapes she got from TNP for the years she lived there kept her going. And I'll tell you their story in a few minutes. So... Deuteronomy 8.2 says, why, why do we have testing? Just listen to what Moses said, and it applies to us. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert those 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. He humbled you to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And just think about this. That was quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ when he was tested in the desert. And he was tested to turn bread, or stones into bread, which he could do easily. But he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, of course, they had a unique situation in the desert, and our situation may not be like that. A part of that was their bad decisions. A part of that was testing. Every believer has tests. And yet, as we look back, God was preparing us and others for his plan and his purpose. And Isaiah forty thirty one says, Yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the right time, promote you. And my favorite verse also, as your pastor mentioned tonight, First Peter, one of our favorites, First Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So let me tell you about some of the tests of these guys. Uh, pastor Danny uh, had a wife. They migrated to the U.S. She died when she was 38. She was a doctor. 
He survived that, came back to our ministry, and he's been with us for eight years. Uh, all of these guys have been through a lot of tests, but I want to tell you about the test of this lady being married to a Muslim. Last April 9 through 13, 2018, I attended a conference in Mindanao where Western mission supporters met Filipino frontliners to Muslim communities. I was accompanied by Musa, which means Moses. We call him Dino. Well, I'm still talking about this guy uh, right here. That's, he was the Muslim. And Charito Makapodi. They are expats from New Jersey. They have been in the U.S. for about 35-plus years. Musa is a dentist. Charito is a nurse ready to use their retirement years for mission work in the Philippines. They're coming back. They're going to use our church as a base. And we're going to partner with them so we can reach some of the Muslims in the Philippines. Over 35 years ago, Charito, a native of Lucina City, attended my Bible classes, while Musa, then a Maranao Muslim from Lanao del Norte, Mindanao, would wait outside. And, of course, uh, he was an unbeliever, a non-believer. And then Musa became a believer in Jesus Christ in 2008 uh, after the prayers of his wife and children. They made a trip. Here's how he became a believer. They made a trip to Israel, and their guide was a believer, gave him the gospel, and he became a believer in Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is unbelievable. He and his, he with his wife, Chirito, are now both ambassadors for Christ with an intense desire to serve some of the 1.1 million Mao people, that's the short name for that, uh, which is a part of his tribe and others living in the Philippines, and there are 11 million Muslims, and the radical ones, most of them are in the south. Many of them are migrating out now. We have two mosques now in our areas, which we never had when we first arrived. By the way, when we first arrived in the Philippines, there were 40 million people. You put those 7,000 islands together, it's about the size of the state of Arizona, 40 million people, this was in 1975, now there's about 100 million. So you can imagine 11 million of those are Muslims. So the last point that I want to remember, and I'll give you more of our ministry update here, is to remember God's faithfulness. The immutability of God's character, His grace, which guarantees every promise that he has made, thousands and thousands of them. And anyone that has been in the ministry in any way can attest to the faithfulness of God. And so one of the organizations that we use, we call it GMF, Global Mission Fellowship. We have people that were a part of our ministry that are in many parts of the Philippines, as well as the USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK, we have a teacher and nurse going to the Middle East this year. And if OFWs, which are classified as overseas Filipino workers, are properly prepared, they can be a, a, an effective ambassadors for Christ in many parts of the world, and especially in English-speaking countries. There's about 87 different dialects in the Philippines. The two official languages of the Philippines, Tagalog and English, and so English is a great, any native speaker of English has a great opportunity of, in the Philippines. And probably the most 
the ministry that has given the most results, the one that has allowed us to have an impact uh, as the laws of divine establishment to our community is our school. We call it Metro Lucina Integrated Learning Center. The combination of a local church and a Christian school is a powerful strategy to impact a community in the Philippines. In 1999, we started what is now incorporated as Metro Lucena Integrated Learning Center. We started with only eight students, and I'm going to show you some pictures of how God has used that. We now, and we had one teacher, and I'll show you a picture when we had that original group. Uh, another organization we have is Christian Leadership Training Center. I've been involved in seminary work. We had what is called the Nagalusina Bible Seminary. I've been involved in Bible college work. I was the president of a Bible college my first two years in Cebu City when we had that 107 students. This is neither a Bible college or a seminary, but pastors like your pastor, who has so much uh, information and credentials, can have a can be a big help in providing information for this. It's called Christian Leadership Training Center. And it's focused on the people in our ministry that are in full-time Christian service, like, for example, as a vocation, such as our teachers in our school. Also, we have a thrust on English. English is a global opportunity. Uh, this is a powerful tool in Asia today, especially the Philippines. They estimate, it's called a POEA, it's an Overseas Employment Organization in the Philippines, that there are about 15 million Filipinos in 217 countries. By the way, most of them are legal. That's a good thing. They're not illegal. <laughs> and so they about 3,000 Filipinos a day leave the Philippines and go to other countries. And one of the biggest hurdles for them is English. And they need, for example, thousands of nurses in the next 10 years in England. And the hurdle they have is passing what is called the IELTS test, International English Language Training System. And my wife has been an IELTS examiner on the side after all of her other duties for the last 14 years. And so let me show you some of the pictures of our various ministries. Let me just say this. All of our ministries are a ministry of our church. I'll give you the purpose statement of our church in a little bit. But every ministry, especially our school, is a ministry of our church. And our organization is organized in such a way that the school doesn't have their own message. Their message for salvation, faith alone in Christ alone, comes from us. So here's the batch that we started in 1999. Cindy was the only teacher. Most of them came from our church. There's eight students and one teacher. This year, we have 62 teachers and staff, and we have 524 students. So it shows you how that's grown. Uh, we got so crowded in our original building, we had nowhere to go, and God graciously provided most of all through the local tuition there in our school. Uh, Cindy and I have never taken any anything from that school, but they do. It is a nonprofit incorporated organization, 
and yet we can charge tuition. 70% of that goes to the teachers, and right now the teachers are self-sustaining from this corporation. And, of course, we can use the buildings not only for the school, but we can use them for church activities, evangelism, and so on as well. So we called the groundbreaking ceremony on February 2nd, 2015, the MLILC, that's the acrostic for our school, Hope Project. And we use different ways to reach our community. One way is basketball. That's a favorite that's a favorite sport in the Philippines. And we now have full-time coaches, and that's their ministry. Not only we have eight different teams in our school, and their whole ministry is not only winning basketball games, but to evangelize these young people. And that's a great opportunity. This is our chapel. That's my main thing with the school. This year we have six chapels a week. Uh, yes, six chapels a week. I don't teach all of them. I teach the upper ones. And even though many of these students, they come from a Catholic background, probably 60% of them, when we get done with them, we have a great opportunity, a great opportunity for evangelism and edification. This is our Christian Leadership Training Center for Batch 2018. No, those ladies are not being trained for pastoras. They're teachers in our school, but they get college-level doctrinal courses so that they can be excellent teachers. Um, this is our board of directors, both for our school, and you saw these men in previous pictures. They've, all of them have been with us at least 20 years, most of them over 30 years. So it's a great board, solid foundation, and they make us stay on message. This is the Lucina, our main campus, 2016 and 17 batch. This is an aerial view of our main campus. Uh, we actually lived in this building for 17 years, and then we we're able to build three stories at this time. If it looks old, it is. This building, we got the property in 1979, and we built the first, uh, first project of this building. Uh, I don't know if Katie remembers this, but we talked about a river flowing right by our building. And actually, some people in Baraka Church helped us with ideas. That never happened because of the incredible finances it would have taken. This river that you can see down here is really, it's right next to the building. And every time there was a storm, more and more of the side of our, of our bank, river bank, would erode away. Finally, our chairman of the board wrote a letter to the government, and they spent 13 million pesos in building a retainer wall, and now no more erosion. That's what I call God's amazing grace. This is an aerial view of our second campus, second building. And in the Philippines, you can build and still have classes at the same time. So we had the first section, and we had about 90 students that first year, and then the second session. And now we're on the third year and the third level. And so if you look at it from the back, on top will be an all-purpose room. This will give us the opportunity in our community to for more evangelism, as well as developing students. The curriculum we use is embedded with the gospel and Bible stories. It's in chapel where we teach them uh, doctrine and the truth, and so it's a great teaching opportunity. I also teach the teachers, and so we got 
62 teachers. That's a class within itself, and I have the opportunity to teach them. This is a staff in 2015, and they're still with them. Some of them are teachers also. They do a dual purpose. And I want you to look at them. Only two of us are old people. The rest are millennials. That's the next generation. And so one of your prayers would be not only for your church and the next generation, but those missionaries that you pray for, and we hope it's including us, that you would pray for our next generation. And uh, this is our teachers in 2018, this year. Uh, This is the, if you ever visit Manila, Uh, You need to go to the American Memorial Cemetery. There's 17,000 crosses in this cemetery. Uh, Many people don't know this, but one million Filipinos died in World War II. And so Jesus said in John 15, 12 through 13, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And, of course, we have the freedom to do what we're doing tonight because of the people who have sacrificed their lives. And the, the Philippines is one of those countries where the price of freedom was very high. Since World War II, God has provided over 60 years of freedom because of military victory. And this is the why we still have missionary activity in the Philippines. Uh, the armed forces made this possible through some of the greatest sacrifices of World War II. And, of course, if you ever visit Manila, I hope you will visit that. We're thankful for them. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight. We're still with Operation Grace World Missions. Uh, It was Katie Tapping during that time that gave me the list of all the doctrinal pastors in America. We did that whole thing of deputation all over again. Thank you, Katie Tapping, very much. And we're we're very happy to be with Operation Grace World Missions. If you ever want to contact us, I, I, I think you know the president of uh, Kimler Donahoe. So if you ever want to contact us, you can go through Operation Grace World Missions. Thank you again, Pastor Bob, Robbie, for this great opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you. <laughs>